0: What's going on, family? What's going on? What's going down? What's shaking? Welcome to another episode of Jonathan Soul. Here on Jonathan Soul, I talk to artists about their craft and politics. So today, we're going to talk to Minister Faust, uh, a, a Canadian brother who um, not only is a novelist, but he's been on uh, broadcasts like television and radio. He's doing podcasting now. MF Galaxy is podcast. You can find all this stuff over at ministerfaust.com. Com, he's from Canada, so I'm teasing him about you know them not locking their doors. You you know what I'm talking about. All right, let's get into it, brother Minister Faust.
1: Well, you know, Michael Moore definitely—he um, does some things right, and he also takes a lot of liberties. With you know, everybody. So I used to be a school teacher when that film *Bowling for Columbine* took yeah. uh, came out, and I took one of my grade ten classes of social studies, and we went to go see that movie together. And everybody in the class groaned when Moore started. Uh, trying to unlock doors in toronto because nobody does that in edmonton and i guarantee you that if he found one house in toronto that was unlocked he must have been trying for hours because that is not that is definitely not how we live here and we do enjoy we enjoy a very you know son of saccharine uh international reputation but this is a colonial settler state founded yeah. on genocide, participating in imperialist crusades. Yeah. helped to destroy the government of Libya. It yeah. helped to invade Haiti. I mean, the yeah. only th- what we are is basically we are like
0: Robin to the American Batman. Wow, wow! You guys sound except, like uh, except not a good guy. Except not a good guy. Yeah, you sound like yeah. U.S. with better PR. I mean, that's what it. Mm-hmm. That's 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 what it sounds like. So. I mean, since you guys are so close, I mean, you, you gotta give me your 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 opinions uh, on, on Trump. You know what's happening uh, <laughs> with uh, you know Venezuela. He's just trying to help him out. That's all he's trying <laughs> to do. Like we helped out Gaddafi yeah. and them. You, you follow me? Like you know, he's just exactly. trying to.
1: Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, the poor people of Venezuela burdened with all that oil and all those public (laughs) services, you know, all he's trying to do is just take the the terrible pain and the misery of charting your own destiny and freedom away from them and grant them the beautiful serenity of extremely low wages, a totally privatized public sector, and uh, the absolute certainty that comes from having to be totally lockstep in march with U.S.
0: imperialism. You see, I couldn't have put that better myself. Yeah, (laughs) and and the thing that's crazy is I don't think it's lost on the world. Like when things went down with with, with Gaddafi, they was able to, 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 to finesse their way into tricking us to thinking, oh, he's really, you know, messing with his people and this, that, and the third. We didn't know that, you know, Libya had one of the highest literacy rates on the continent, you know, we didn't know that, you know, you know, the economy was fairly stable. They didn't have a World Bank in there at the time. It was a lot of good things happening. But uh, yeah, it, yeah, it had the highest uh, human development indicators uh,
1: for the African continent. It was the richest country on the continent. Now, there's nobody should should pretend that it was uh, from a political or, or a freedom standpoint that it was a great place to live. It wasn't. It, it, there was a tyranny there. There were terrible conditions. There was the death penalty, and in fact, the use of the death penalty was so terrible, and so was torture, that that's where Western governments like Britain sent people to be tortured as an outsourced facility, so that they could keep their own hands relatively clean. Mm. But that being said, uh, you had a it was a it was a, an irony where you had these terrible political conditions, and yet human development. There were some. Great results, and that meant you know free housing, and that meant university education. It also meant a lot of people think of Libya as a as an Arab country, and they forget it's on the African continent. So it's an African country that has a combination of Africans and Libyan and and, and Arabs there, and so it was a place where, uh, n- and I don't just mean people who migrated there from Senegal and Mali and other nearby Sahelian countries. I'm talking about uh, actual African Libyans who whose ancestors have been there for thousands of years since the time of ancient Egypt. Mm. And it was when the when the West, and that includes Canada, France, the United States, uh, which at the time was led by Barack Obama that chose to destroy yeah. Libya and return it to slavery. And they yeah. did that in in an alliance with racist Arab jihadis who wanted to de-africanize the country. So you know, nobody should have any illusions about uh, Western powers, and their governments, or for that matter, anybody's governments. I mean, we don't need to take sides with governments or corporations. We only need to take sides with innocent
0: people. Yeah, yeah. The other connection to uh, Libya is that, ah, uh, before, um, you know, America put the kibosh on all of that. He was talking about, uh, you know, getting rid of uh, that the whole petrodollar system and uh, trading oil for gold. You you heard about that, right? He wanted to have yeah. that, that currency. I- and, I've certainly
1: uh, read read a few things about the yeah using a gold uh, dinar, yeah, which yeah. Uh, and if anybody if anybody takes the trade of oil uh, off of the American dollar, then the American Empire is basically finished.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess they can't kill everybody. You know what I mean? Uh, now, <laughs> no. now, uh, now, um, Nicholas uh, Maduro. I I tweeted uh, earlier uh this afternoon, you know, I saw him on on Facebook basically appealing to the American people. Yo, mm-hmm. your government trying to start another Vietnam scenario, my folks, we need you guys to stand up. And I merely thought about uh, Halle Selassie going before the League of Nations, you know, basically yeah. saying that, you know, it's me today. You know what yep. I mean? It it might be somebody else tomorrow. And so I was yeah. like, you know, we went from going to the League of Nations to, to social media, but the vibration haven't changed, you know.
1: Look, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, uh, there's plenty, as it would be the case with every single government on Earth, plenty of, plenty of stuff that's worth criticizing about uh, the government of Venezuela and not just under Maduro. I mean, I, there was a lot that I admired about the former president, Hugo Chavez. Yep. Uh, but any government, you can always find stuff that you should change and you should criticize. But the fact is, you know, this is a country that, like the rest of Latin America, was living underneath, uh, was living inside of, you know, what what American imperialists call the U.S. sphere of influence. But mm. you know, I would say if the Soviet Union had an iron curtain, then the United States had the ivory curtain, mm. and they said, you know, this is our place. We're going to do with it what we want. They used to use, they, called, they used to call Cuba the bordello of the Caribbean. You know, yeah, so it was really there. Too. Yeah. and that shows you the level of respect that they had for the people there who they let live under gangster governments same thing with Venezuela the people were in terrible conditions except for the uh, elite and very pale uh, and wealthy elite the oligarchy there yep. and the goal now is uh, give it all back to them you know as, so because they will work with uh, you know as the b- bootlicks to US corporations and the United States government and of course you know in Brazil like if they're so concerned about freedom why are they saying nothing about Brazil that's just elected an actual fascist? Yeah. Why are they so gung-ho about uh, working with Saudi Arabia, one of the worst tyrannies on the planet as it massacres the people of Yemen? So, you know, people just have to they they have to be consistent with their ethics and say if it's wrong in this place, it's wrong in that place. And they should also just be suspicious anytime any powerful person tells you hate him and love him then you have to say there's probably something good about the person you're telling me to hate and something bad about the person you're telling me to love.
0: Do you ever feel like, uh, it's so many things going on that maybe, you know, we should, you know, everybody should just like pick an issue and then put blinders on. Cause I I start (laughs) to get a a certain fatigue, you know what I mean? Uh, looking at all of this, all of this stuff. I mean, what's your take on that?
1: I totally hear you and I think what I would say to everybody I mean uh, you know I, I don't know how old you are I know we have both got several decades under our belts yep. and you know I'm I'm looking at the half century mark this I year I just
0: turned 50 uh last year
1: Well congratulations so we we no wonder we have so much in common and so <laughs> you know? Uh, the thing is, you, you I'm sure you've been through this many times yourself, and you've seen this with other people working in the struggle for justice, which is we're all going to face those times where we feel like we've burned out. Mm-hmm. But after you've done it, after you felt that burnout the first time, you have a choice. And you can say, look, look, I can ease back in until I'm back at full capacity, or I can quit forever. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you have decided to continually come back and keep fighting for justice and that's the way to go and it's okay to say to yourself I'm done as long as you say just kidding. <laughs>
0: okay all right now um, uh, there's a, a a lot of people uh, more educated than me in terms of politics and history you sound like one of them and so <laughs> um, and so one of the ways I kind of get around that and, and still I guess participate in the struggle one is obviously interviewing you know knowledgeable people too I try to put my politics in my sci-fi so mm-hmm. you know I mm-hmm. have some stuff out there because I can create that world you know what I mean and then I focus on you know comics created by you know uh, black creators whether it be in America or uh, you know Canada or Caribbean Africa wherever. I'd focus yeah. on that because I like the worlds that we're building. Can you tell Mm -hmm. me about uh, this world that you're building in the sequel to Coyote King's uh, Space Age Bachelor Pad? Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, so, uh, and, you know, like you, I mean, I I think stories, you know, fiction is a great place to explore these key issues because, you know, people can be so uh, overwhelmed with the evil of the real world that they just can't take the news anymore. But they still have a yearning to understand what's going on. And, you know, for the most part, most, you know, textbooks are are not written in a way that's particularly entertaining and a lot of brilliant historians. I mean, I love Noam Chomsky. I've interviewed Noam Chomsky. But, you know, you're not going to find any Noam Chomsky book that's a page turner. (laughs) So, you know, when when we have movies, comics, television, video games, books that explore our real history – through stories we can we can uh, we can retain and we want to stay in those worlds much longer so the coyote kings the very first story was in 1995 and so i was looking at the time you know the story takes place right here in edmonton and and some parts of other parts of alberta and it was about two young brothers one is a sudanese canadian the other is a trinidadian canadian and you know they're both too smart for their own good you might say and they met a, a a remarkable smart fascinating, beautiful Ethiopian sister, who introduced them to a fascinating, gorgeous secret, also a deadly one, which is that magic is real. Mm. And so they they had to undertake a, a quest to find uh, an ancient object that would fundamentally transform their perspective on themselves and the universe. So it, here in book two, it takes place two years later, and my main character, Hamza, he's the Sudanese-Canadian, uh, he has this miraculous ability to find things you know it's uh, some whether it's you know gift of evolution or uh, ancient Egyptian gods or who knows what but he can find things and his his partner his best friend yehat, he is great at inventing things. so he's actually built his own armored suit called the armor uh, with the capital R okay <laughs> and so, In this new book, uh, The Coyote Kings versus the Myconauts of Plutonium City, uh, these two brothers have opened a detective agency because, you know, if you can find anything, what's better to do than become a a detective? So uh, they got a call from Yeehat's old girlfriend, and that is, well, it's not really his girlfriend. It was a girl that he was crazy about and didn't really have the time of day for him. And she says, look, our old professor, we, we all met way back in a deep ecology class at university. Our professor has been murdered. And he's in the heart of the, like, Alberta, which is where I live, is a petro state. So the oil industry headquartered in what we used to call the tar sands, mm-hmm. and really still is the tar sands, a very toxic zone. Uh, there, there's this, um, she believes it's a conspiracy of, of uh, bikers, uh, oil companies, Cultists and uh, possibly the RCMP, which is like, you know, state police would be in the US, okay. uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but they don't ride horses. They ride, you know, cruisers and motorcycles. Um, and she believes that they have offed their old professor because he was an opponent of uh, the oil sands. But what what the, the coyotes, Hamza and had don't know yet is that there is a lot of very sinister stuff happening. Literally underneath the soil. And so when they have to go investigate this murder, they are going to be drawn into this world that is actually uh, uh, where there are people who are looking forward to the fall of humanity. Mm. So it's a chance for me to explore, you know, these corporate forces, government forces and also uh, neo-Nazis. Uh, because as you well know, we got an awful lot of those to deal with. And some of them are in the street and some of them are, are at 1600, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue.
0: Yeah. Now I'm listening to you to describe the story and I'm trying to gauge your, your demographic, the audience. And so I had an idea. And then as you went on <laughs> that number and the age kept going up. So it's like, <laughs> I mean, that's heavy. What you just described is heavy. What is your target demographic for this particular series?
1: Well, you know, I think, I mean, I was happy that the first book, The Coyote Kings, it seemed to reach an awful lot of people. I was always surprised when younger readers went for it, and I found that there were some teenagers who really dug the book, and I was happy for that. But I, I, I think that the core audience age-wise was probably, you know, 25 to 50. That's my perspective. Of course, now that you and I are in the 50 zone, right, it's right. probably, you know, like 25 to 60 or so. Mm-hmm. I think that there's an awful lot of, um, when when my when the book one came out, I was one of the first writers. Now we take it for granted, you know, but I was one of the first writers to actually feature science fiction fans as characters in the book. So the characters know the same stuff that you and I grew up loving talking about with our friends. I mean, all the characters are somehow connected with, you know, science fiction and fantasy. So they talk about this stuff in their own world. So it, it has a lot of appeal to readers because they see themselves recognized. You probably remember that it wasn't so long ago. And of course, even with shows like the Big Bang Theory, that everybody who read science fiction and fantasy was depicted as a weirdo with tape on his glasses who lived in his mom's basement and who didn't take a shower. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while it's true that that does describe a subset of fandom, it's obviously not the vast majority of us. So I was one of, to my knowledge, I was one of the first writers to really uh, challenge that stereotype. And I was also one of the first to address the fact that obviously lots of us as global Africans, whether we are African-Americans or we are Somalis or Nigerians or Trinidadians or, or what have you, mm. loads of us love science fiction. Yeah. And one of the reasons we do is because it presents us with the opportunity to imagine and even create worlds in which, the dominant power is not white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that's why you know that's why Black Panther was such a massive hit. And I'd also like to point out that, you know, Hollywood executives told us for decades, uh, they couldn't make a movie like that because they would tell us, these are white Hollywood executives. They'd say, look, man, I'd love to make your movie, but you know, white people are too racist to want to pay money, ticket money for a film like that. Well, the reality was, as we clearly saw, millions of white people, millions of Euro-Americans and Canadians wanted to see African heroes, and they wanted to see a brilliant African civilization. So there was a schism between the racist Hollywood executives and millions of Euro-Americans and Canadians and Europeans uh, in the continent of Europe who actually uh, can see past the, the racism of their forefathers. And so there's an awful lot of us. And of course, that also includes Uh, Asian people and indigenous people and others who want African heroes. So, uh, you know, but I think that, you know, that very long ponderous answer is that age wise, I think it's probably 25 to 60 and it's people who love living in a planet where you get to see a lot of different people and are sick and tired of the old boring story where a story is 98% white males and 2% uh, white women who were there for the sake of being sex objects
0: hmm. What motivates you to write science fiction? I mean, you've interviewed, you know, a, a lot of people, I guess, in your TV career and your podcast, by the way, uh, shout out your podcast. Uh, uh, M- oh, thank you. Yeah. MF Galaxy.
1: Yeah. yeah MF Galaxy. So, you know, the, the focus of it's got four things that it looks at writers on writing or generally artists on the craft and the business of creating the arts. So, you know, lots of shows. Uh, for good reason, want to interview people about their book, but I want to interview people about how they made their book, their comic, their video game, their poem, their play, their screenplay, their movie, whatever. And then not just the craft, but the business. How do you get paid to do this? Because artists need to know all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I also look at uh, progressive politics I look at uh, 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 anything that is Afrocentric. So a lot of culture, history, civilization. So, you know, this is, you know, that's that's what the podcast exists for. So it's MF Galaxy. There's 186 episodes already online. Wow. And, okay. folks, you know, if folks want to support it, they can certainly do that on Patreon Patreon.com uh, dot, dot slash MF Galaxy. But really, you know, anybody... Uh, can just listen to the show for free using your major podcasting sites. But if you subscribe, then you get extra content. You get all the bonus stuff that couldn't fit into a half-hour show.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So what motivated you to write in the sci-fi genre? Well,
1: you know, uh, I'm sure that you had that experience growing up where you would turn on television or the movies and you'd be- basically you'd see almost none of us there. And the few times that you saw us, you would see us depicted as criminals uh, and lowlifes. And even on the few occasions, I mean, you would have been, I guess, about seven or so. I was about six when Roots came out. It was the biggest television event that had ever been in the United States. Which I refused to watch.
0: Oh really? I didn't know that. That's I refuse to watch Roots. I refuse to watch *Color Purple*. Haven't seen it to this day.
1: <laughs> well, I, I will say this about Roots. Um, you know, had some it had some excellent uh features. I haven't watched it since I was a kid. I'm sure it have a very different take now. Mm-hmm. But one of the main deficiencies is that, although it it did create its characters in Gambia with a great deal of uh, dignity. Uh, and features some great artists and uh, actors and great score by Quincy Jones. You know, one of the main problems was that it, it reinforced the, the Tarzan Ooga Booga concept of people in loincloths. And if anybody, you know, actually bothers to read about classical African civilizations uh, and civilizations of what Europeans would call medieval period or the Renaissance, they don't realize this. you're talking about urban Societies. You were, right. Yes, of course, there's there's farmers, but there are in every country on the earth. But what Roots entirely missed was showing us architecture, the arts, literature, uh, sh- showing us connections among African kingdoms and societies stretching back thousands of years. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, that's partly uh, that's partly I would assume Alex Haley's own fault, even though he should have learned more and better uh, from Malcolm X directly when they were working on the autobiography together. But so You know, I wanted to create work, uh, and I call my work Afrotopianism. A lot of people use the term Afrofuturism, and -hmm. what they don't realize is that it was a a Euro-American, Mark Deary, who came up with the term. And I'm not not saying that uh, because it comes from a European that it can't be of any use. That's obviously not my point. My point is, though, that when you want to chart your own future, Mm -hmm. when you want to undertake self-determination, it starts with self-description. Preach. You got to name yourself and, and you got to figure out who you are under your own definition. And if you don't, you will be trapped by somebody else's perspectives, which are usually going to be wrong. Yep. So what does, what does Afrofuturism do? Well, the, the first step is, notice right in the word, it ignores the present and it ignores the past. Mm-hmm. But we, we don't want to ignore our past. Too many of us, we were brainwashed by the European empire, the genocidal enslavers who destroyed our cities and our manuscripts and our countries and millions of us and reduced tens of millions of us to perpetual enslavement, it stole from us our awareness of our own civilizations and our brilliant accomplishment, so much to the extent that there are uh, millions and millions of us in in the West who have been so trained to hate everything about Africa, because of course, if you love Africa, then you will work for Africa's liberation Mm -hmm. and you will see yourself as part of that, Um, that they can't even bear, they could live their whole lives and never once call themselves African. Mm. And some people say, well, you're you're trying to erase, you know, who I am. I said, look, (laughs) if you're an African-American, if you're from Trinidad, if you are from Brazil, I'm not saying in any way to forget the brilliance of the civilization that you have created. I happen to adore African-American culture and uh, and civilization. And so many of my heroes are African-Americans. But African-Americans, it doesn't, doesn't stop you from being an African American to call yourself an African any more than if you are a Somali yep. or from Chad or from uh, or from Namibia. Mm-hmm. It stops you from being those things by calling yourselves an African. It just means that you are part of the billion strong African family. So what we need is Afrotopianism which means you know like Africa and utopianism mm-hmm. we are going to look at our past yeah. and we are going to embrace all the brilliance and the glory and the genius that we've created over the millennia and we are going to unite that with our present and look to the future and we are not going to see a European so like in the United States some of the pro- propaganda terms that are extremely destructive are uh, the term the term slavery or the old south Makes a pretty uh, sanitized uh, historical take on what I call, I think far more correctly, a continent-wide rape gulag. Mm. And once you once you see it for what it is, and you say this is one of the greatest crimes in the history of humanity, you don't view it as this is our origin, because you know some of us have been misled to believe that that's where we started. Right. Instead, you say, no, no, this was a appalling crime along the way, mm-hmm. but I have. 5,000 years of African civilization before it to draw upon, or at least, you know, yeah. So if we're talking about ancient Egypt. And so that's what I want to do. I want to take work that says, let's take our past, let's take our present, let's take our future. And by the way, not in a way that excludes any of us. Half of us are women. Many of us, including our greatest heroes, are of varying sexualities. They are all our African family, and we don't need to shut out any of them. What we need to do is unite all of us and say, this is our project for greatness. And, you know, I can't think of many things that are more inspiring or more beautiful or uh, more deserving of our attention and our energy.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's beautiful, man. I I like that concept of uh, Afrotopian. Uh, Afrotopianism. And I think you have the same angst that I have about the t- the title Afrofuturism. Uh, you mm-hmm. and I both had the privilege of interviewing um, uh, the professor uh, Jenkins. I'm sorry, Je- John Jennings, uh, a while yeah, ago. Yeah, John Jennings. Yeah, he yeah. kind of hit me to, you know, how that term uh, came about. And mm-hmm. then I, I, the more, you know, I posted the interview, it was wonderful. I learned a lot from him. And the more I thought about it, the more it, it, it really fucked with me. That this white brother, you know, named, you know, what I mean, and so I started, I started thinking, man, you know what? So yep. I came up with, you know, based on the interviews, because I learned something from everybody. But mm-hmm. um, I came up with that with the, I guess I call it the the premise or the intent of my own personal is I call it funkadelic. Yeah, it's not exactly the original term, but when you think funkadelic, you know it's futuristic and you know it's black. Except in in my mind, I felt like I'm not going to write about a dystopian future because nothing can be worse than slavery or this uh, nationwide rape gulag, as you put it. So that's that's the past. It can't get no worse than that. So the future can only be brighter. So it, it, I it, I yeah. I totally agree with you, and I yeah. love your
1: use of the term funkadelic because you know in fact I even wrote an, an article uh, for a, a book called uh, Let's All Go to the Science Fiction Disco, and mm-hmm. the article also appears on Io9, and it's basically me exploring the Afrocentric meaning. Of the mothership from Funkadelic. Oh wow! And you know there is there there's so much that is built into the mothership that is you know absolutely fascinating. And of course you know for many of us who grew up reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, we know a lot about the uh, the theology of the Nation of Islam, and it's mm. pretty clear that you know the mothership has a connection to the mothership that's from the NOI. And so there's all this stuff about uh, liberation from bondage and and uh, our ability to to chart our course to worlds of our own making. And and yeah. you know there are. Our artists, our Afrotopian artists, like like Sun Ra, who, you know, he, he, yes, it's true, he said he was from an angel race from Saturn, but if you look at so many of his images, they are images from ancient Egypt. So Mm -hmm. he was, he had had a thoroughly Afrocentric vision at a time when, you know, most people, uh, I mean, Many, many African-Americans and people, you know, from the Caribbean, like uh, Ivan Van Serteman, knew that Egypt was an African civilization. Mm-hmm. But so many other people were laboring under the lies of like a Liz Taylor movie like Cleopatra. Yeah. Um, and, you know, right to this day, Hollywood will still try to trick us with stuff like gods of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, good on you for, um, you know, applying the term funkadelic. I love that. And I also love the fact that um, because we bring in to our Afrocentric science fiction, we, and, you know, people like um, Milton Davis yep. uh, and uh, Balaguno Ojetade, who who really uh, have pioneered Wonderful the use of terms such as, yeah. mm-hmm. a- absolutely, you know, yeah. and using terms such as steam funk and diesel funk, they recognize, like a lot of us have done for a long time, that, you know, music is a massive part of any culture or society and a very inspirational, beautiful part. And so, uh, a term like Funkadelic says, you know, our pop culture is not, you know, exterior to our scientific and religious and cultural and political voyage. It's it's an intrinsic part of it. So, yeah,
0: Funkadelic. I love that. You know, uh, you you kept you mentioned, you know, like, you know, obviously uh, Sun Ra and um, you also mentioned NOI. So mm-hmm. I have a CD, one of my mm-hmm. most prized possessions. I have a CD a Mary Baraka and you know a, a whole bunch of other actors sitting around a table you know how they used to do like the little audio you know like the little mm. audio plays or whatever so mm. they're doing the uh is it Yaku like the whole origin of Yaku you know what I'm talking about the evil <laughs> yeah, scientist yeah Yaku yeah and yeah. Sunrise Orchestra is is providing the theme music <laughs> it's the dopest shit ever man the dope uh, I found it I think it was like Third Street Jazz in Philadelphia or something a long time ago <laughs> And uh, scared the hell out of my children. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, but, wow. that was so groovy in terms of the creativity and even the way they put it together, because you can hear people moving the microphones on the table and stuff. But I mean, you were transported when, you know the you know, I, that kind of early science fiction writing is like very important to us and maybe I should see if I can find it and I don't know if I can post it it might be copywritten but we we have a legacy in terms of science fiction writing it goes past that goes earlier than um uh what's the sister everybody Octavia Butler Butler. yeah yeah. you know it's it's... earlier than her I even heard that um W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a science fiction joint that some university got on lockdown. You, you Have you heard yeah, that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, John Jennings, uh, you know, the brother, who's, he's an amazing artist amazing. and award winner and all kinds of great stuff, graphic novels, he's a professor. Uh, he has named his – he's got a deal with um, Abrams uh, Publishing, and so he's got a, a an imprint that he is a, a freelance editor for, and it's called Megascope, and that's named after the W.E.B. Du Bois story. Oh, and, you know, God. so we have – we, we were making science fiction, yes, at the time of W.E.B. Du Bois, but even earlier, um, uh, it was Martin Delaney, not Samuel Delaney, who wrote Dahlgren in the 60s. This was Martin Delaney, the Martin same Delaney? brother who, with Frederick Douglass, co-founded the North Star. Oh, uh, shit. He, you know, he was a liberationist who wrote a book called Blake or the Huts of America, and it is about a... A socialist revolution between African Americans and and African Cubans uh, to transform uh, you know the Western Hemisphere. So we yeah. were envisaging brighter futures way back then using science fiction, even before it was called science fiction. And you know, and I and I also want to give uh, credit because uh, you know I I want to work with anybody who wants to work for justice of any background. And it was a Euro American uh, academic named Lisa Yazik. Uh, who's uh, right now works at uh, Georgia Tech. Uh, I'd never heard this uh, remarkable story of just how old uh, science fiction, Afrocentric science fiction was. And so it was after I, you know, I found that she was doing a little bit of writing on my own work. And then I started to read some of the other things she had to say. And I was blown away to learn this. Mm. So, and there were were sisters who were doing um, uh, this kind of Afrotopian work also in the 19... uh, 30s. I, in fact, while we're talking, I'm trying to bring up the name of the sister because I, I hate to. Uh, oh, and I got the name of this, uh, this sister. Her name okay. is Pauline Hopkins. So she was born in 1859. She died in 1930. And she wrote a book called Of One Blood. And that is about this hidden technotopia in ethiopia wow. so it was a uh, you know it was wakanda before stanley and jack kirby brought us wakanda so that's you know amazing.
0: just just amazing stuff amazing i mean i mean I, you know most of us come from west africa right so that's that timbuktu vibration you know mm, what i mean yeah. a gun or whatever but really if you want to count you know ancient texts everything they wrote on the pyramids the priests mm-hmm. knew it was science fiction. The people didn't. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, yeah. It like, they knew, yeah, they knew. They was you know what I mean. They knew it was bullshit, but the people did. But uh, wow, yeah. man, wow, wow, wow. See, these 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 are the kind of interviews that make podcasting worthwhile. You know what I mean? I,
1: I, yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, I, you know, I do, as you, as you mentioned very kindly, let me plug my podcast yep. getting to talk with amazing people, people like you, uh, authors and, and filmmakers and other people who just, you know, share your passion for things. And we've all got a whole bunch of knowledge in our own areas. And then we get to talk to people who know some stuff that we didn't know. And then yeah. we get to pool that knowledge together. You know, we get to share our gold.
0: So, uh, so as we close out, cause I want to respect your time. Um, mm-hmm. Ghana, uh, I believe it was this year, 2019, has declared this like the, you know, I won't say it was a celebration, but they're recognizing 400 years, you know, since we left home kind of a thing. Right. And, yes. uh, you, know, you know, I think that there's certain, uh, certain optimism inside of, you know, creators, sci-fi people, like on a perfect day, right? You mm-hmm. had the button and then you can make some things happen what kind of changes would you see in the global African community in connection with this? You know, they're trying to make it easier for us to return, you know, permanent mm-hmm. residency, mm-hmm. the whole bit, yeah. you know, what, what, what kind of, what, what would be a perfect scenario? Yeah. I love how you phrase that. And it's particularly in light of this awesome opportunity, because it's so easy for people to, you know,
1: to embrace doom and gloom, especially in an era of, of fascism. But um, we have, you know, enormous opportunities. And I would say that one of the major benefits that comes from, you know, whatever our individual nationality, referring to ourselves as global Africans means that we automatically look for opportunities and alliances and business uh, and, and, and artistic exchange everywhere in the African planet. So I think that when people look at whatever their current business is, or if they're in academia, or if they're in technology, whatever they're doing within the arts, they say, what, where can I find people on the continent who are doing the kind of work that I'm doing? Where can we team up? And so they, you know, if they get past that kind of Uh, you know, world vision perspective that, you know, our continent is uh, exclusively uh, children who have, you know, swollen bellies and flies crawling on their faces. And instead, if they will actually look at, just go online, look at groups on Facebook called the Africa they never show you. For those of us in the West who were raised with shaming and highly misleading uh, curation of, uh, of ugly images of the African continent. Some people here don't even know that that Africa is 54 countries plus a territory. They Mm. don't know that we have literally thousands of languages, at least 1600. They don't know that we have megacities, you know, like cities that are like 5, 10 million people. They don't know about airports, technology, robotics, animation studios, video game studios. And so really, I would say whatever your passion is, whatever you love doing, there are a whole bunch of people on the continent who are doing the same thing. Some of it doing a lot better. And they are looking to hire people. They're looking to team up. They're looking for investors. They're looking for a way to market what they create. And so just... Just as soon as you open your eyes you will, and start to embrace and see all of the glories of the African planet, you will never hesitate to call yourself an African because you'll be so happy to associate yourself with 5,000 plus years of brilliance and magnificence. So I think that's, that is the, the mindset. Just start to look, start to share the images, share the successes and the victories, and your life will never be the same. It will be
0: infinitely better. Wow. Brother Minister Faust, can you tell people how they can find you on the interwebs and how they can support your work? Well, thank you so much,
1: brother, for asking me. So, um, you know, you can find all of my stuff by going to ministerfaust.com. That's the easiest way. There's a link right on the main page so that if you want to support my uh, new serialized novel, uh, you can find, just hit the link at ministerfaust.com for the Coyote Kings versus the Knots of Plutonium City, and that will give you for uh, one buck per scroll, is what I call it. You get about 5,000 words of the latest chapters. You get access to the uh, the soundtrack, because I'm posting the music so that you, that's cited in there, so it's like, I used to be a DJ for many years on on radio, so you get to hear great right, music that you maybe never heard before. Plus, you get uh, access to, you know, some other goodies at a higher levels of sponsorship. And if you want to go straight, you just go patreon.com ministerfaust. And you can also find my podcast there, MF Galaxy, uh, on ministerfaust.com. So that's where you find all of it. And, you know, I really hope that people will support it. A lot of us say, hey, we need to support African artists. And then I say, look, I'm making it easy for you for a buck. so just come on by and you know there's also there's artwork and there's a video developer diary and all kinds of awesome stuff and i gotta thank you once again brother because you are making it possible for people like me to reach a whole bunch of people and you know we can't do this without the support and solidarity so total respect for you brother jonathan
0: fantastic Uh, brother faust it's been an honor to have you on the program it's been an
1: honor for me to be here, and I and I'm looking forward to to staying in regular touch and uh, teaming up our podcasts in a in a greater Afrocentric podcast alliance, so that we can uh,
0: we can maximize our audiences and make some good in the world. Yo, family, what's going on with you? I hope y'all dug that interview. This is Jonathan Soul speak with you now. I want you to support my brothers and sisters by following my social media. And going to their website and picking up their product so we can stop focusing so much on issues and start focusing on building industry for more episodes go to jonathan J-O-H-N, A-T-H-A-N, S O L j-o-h-n-a-t-h-a-n-s-o-u-l.com and of course i'm on social media i'm on uh it's jonathan soul at twitter instagram uh tumblr uh subscribe on itunes subscribe on our uh, soundcloud and I'm, I'm over at a Black Spot as well, that terrific Facebook competitor. Listen, family, I love you guys, and I want all your dreams to come true. And my dreams can't come true without you, and yours can't come true without me. So let's support each other, and let's build this thing together. I love you guys. Peace and love to you and your family. Till next time.